Choose Linux, episode 3, for February 21st, 2019. Hello, welcome to the show that captures the excitement of discovering Linux. I'm Joe. And I'm Jason. And it's our long-awaited and long-promised Raspberry Pi episode. So let's get straight into that. So you got yourself a Raspberry Pi 3B+. Plus. A 3B+, plus, finally. Uh, I, was, I was beginning to wonder if people thought I was just pulling their leg and was never going to <laughs> buy one or cover it or do anything with it. But yes, it finally arrived. And I'm impressed. Like, just right off the bat, I am so impressed. I don't know where this thing has been all my life. I don't know what reason I had for it to, you know, it to be completely off my radar. But now I want 10 of them. Well, I've got a lot of them now. Uh, I've got the very, very first one that came out uh, with only 256 megabytes of RAM, which was very quickly superseded by the 512 version. So I've got that very original one. I've got a zero that someone sent me. That's before they came out with the W. And I've also got a 3B uh, before the Plus came out. But because we were going to be talking about this, I thought, well, it's a good excuse. Got an Amazon, <laughs> 34 quid, got myself a 3B Plus. I bet the Raspberry Pi Foundation loves the fact that so many people need like a dozen of these. Yeah, exactly. Well, because they're so cheap, you can just kind of put them everywhere and, and have one for each dedicated use case and not have to worry too much about it. That was the whole point in the first place, that they were almost disposable compared with, you know, a $1,000 laptop. You know, this thing is $35 or, I mean, it works out at £34, so it's roughly the same after you've paid taxes and everything. So it is very, very cheap and you can do an awful lot with it. The default, though, is Raspbian, where most people start, and I presume that's where you started as well then. It is. Uh, I went, you know, since I am a Linux noob, I discovered that there is a package called Noobs for Raspberry Pi. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's appropriate. <laughs> yeah, and that doesn't actually require any flashing of the card, any DDing or use of Etcher or anything like that. You just copy the files on, and then it just magically works. Yeah, it does. And I was surprised to see that. And what I ended up doing is the, I think it's called Noobs Lite, where, um, I don't know, it's what, what maybe under 100 megabytes. And you just copy it to the, you know, the root of your SD card. And as long as you have a network connection, um, I think you can choose between a few different operating systems and it just downloads and installs much like a network install of a Linux distro, right? And that was super easy. It was all super easy to get set up. And uh, then, you know, when you boot into the Raspbian proper, you choose what country you're in so you can get your Wi-Fi set up. You change your password, things like that. And it was kind of a breath of fresh air after using OpenSUSE. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because it's LXDE, which is very lightweight. It's a very simple operating system, isn't it? And that's the, the sort of the whole point of it, really. It's designed to just launch programs and stay out of your way. Yeah, it's simple, but it's not unattractive, at least in my opinion. It's It looks good. It's not flashy. There's not eye candy everywhere, but it looks good and it's responsive. It certainly is responsive and functional, but for me, it looks quite retro. It looks kind of a bit 90s Amiga style with the icons and everything. Well, let me ask you this. How many people do you think 
actually purchase one of these things and run Raspbian like as their daily driver? How many how many people are actually using this operating system, interfacing with it every day? As their main daily driver, very, very few. I don't think anyone is buying this and using it as their main desktop PC. Right. I think right. that it's just for hobbyism essentially. So maybe it's okay that it's not the most attractive thing. Yeah, I don't have a problem with the way it looks. I think that they have improved dramatically from how it used to look. It used to look sort of 80s, and then they dragged it into the 90s. So, <laughs> you know, that's what I always say. But it's, it's functional is the main thing, and it really has improved. You see, you have come into this with um, hardware acceleration in VLC, able to play 720p videos in YouTube, stuff like that. When it first came out, Raspbian, uh, even on the, the Pi 3, there was none of that. It was very mm. painful to use, whereas they have really refined it over the years. And what's most impressive, something that you can't test because you've only got the most modern Pi, is you can take that SD card out of the Pi 3B+, and put it into the very first Pi, and it will boot up and run it won't run as smoothly, obviously, because it doesn't have the processing power. But that one SD card will work in any of the Raspberry Pis that they've ever sold. No kidding. So no no compatibility issues, anything like that? Well, no. Even though you've got different generations of ARM processor, they've just got all that fixed with the various kernels that you need and everything. It all just happens under the hood seamlessly. It really is amazing. I mean, they do have people working on this full time. And so you would expect it to be a solid experience after this long, and that it definitely is. Yeah, the first thing that I wanted to do when I fired up Raspbian is I wanted to see if I could, like you said, if I could hit YouTube and play back something at 720p smoothly, right? And I did. It, that was that was a non-issue. So then I, I synced up my uh, Bluetooth headphones and started listening to YouTube through there, and then I fired up Terminal. And then I opened up the, uh, the software center. I'm not, I don't remember what it's called, but, you know, just the, the app center for Raspbian. And I think the CPU is only at like 85, 90% doing all of that. I'm looking at this thing going, this is a $35 device. <laughs> it's incredible. It really is. It does have some limitations, though, in that it's only got a gigabyte of RAM. So you do hit that quite frequently and the network isn't the fastest although the 3b plus is faster than the original 3b and it's only usb 2 and it the it doesn't have full gigabit ethernet and you know so the, they have cut some corners but i think that they've really made the best of what they have and they've had to keep that cost down because they've always said that it would be 35 dollars and for $35 is amazing what they've managed to do with it. What I think is insane is how huge the Pi ecosystem is, the like the accessory ecosystem for this thing. I felt like that was going down an entirely new rabbit hole when I started looking. I just was looking for a case. I ended up nothing flashy. I ended up getting the official, you know, the red and white uh, Raspberry Pi case. Yeah. But I started looking at like the high top and the, the touch screens and... Looking at people turning them into stereos and all kinds of different, I mean, Super NES systems with the full enclosure, just like the, just like the original, you know, Super NES. <laughs> just, 
endless amounts of accessories and things to spend your money on for a single $35 device. Yeah, not to mention all of the programming stuff, because that's really the aim of this device. You've got all the various LED add-on boards and sensor boards and everything like that. You could potentially spend hundreds, if not thousands, on all of the various add-on boards and accessories for it for, again, a $35 device. And uh, I would assume that there's no issues turning one of these things into a uh, a NAS or a, a server of some kind, right? Yeah, I've actually used one as a NAS before, but the performance just wasn't great, specifically the network performance, even over Ethernet. And of course, booting off the SD card means it's quite slow, although it's something you probably don't know yet. You can boot from USB devices. So you can get a USB hard drive or SSD and boot from that. All you have to do is change the config. It does have to look at the SD card first, but that very first partition that it looks at, it can then point it at the SSD or hard drive, and then you can get much better performance that way. So that's my tip. If you are looking to do something more serious with it, then look into that. You need a very solid power supply to do that, or ideally a powered hard drive. I have to say one thing before we move on to retro gaming. As you know, I've got a Pinebook. And the Pinebook and the Pi have pretty similar hardware, wouldn't you say? Roughly. The Pinebook's got a bit more RAM, but they're both ARM SOCs, and yeah, they're, they're certainly in the same category. I think why the Pi impressed me so much is it was so much more responsive than anything I've tried on the Pinebook, even though it has two gigs of RAM compared to the Pi's one. I've tried, uh, let's see, I've tried Ubuntu Mate, I've tried KDE Neon, and uh, I think a Manjaro spin for the Pinebook, and none of those were able to even smoothly play a YouTube video at 720p, and the menus take like three, five seconds to actually pop up, and you know, application loading time is lengthy. And so that's why I was so impressed when I was actually multitasking on a $35 Raspberry Pi. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? How, what's, the, what's the reasoning behind that, that vast performance difference? I think it's a case of Raspbian is much more mature than any of the OSs you're going to get on the Pinebook because the Pinebook's relatively new. And also the images for the Pinebook are community images rather than an OS that is being worked on full time. And I think that's really showing here that things like getting the hardware acceleration to work properly just aren't there yet with the Pinebook. Whereas with the Pi, all of that stuff has been ironed out and you've got a huge community as well. Even the community ROMs that you've got for the Pi are very mature at this point because there's such a huge ecosystem, there's such a huge number of users testing and reporting bugs. They've sold millions of these pies, whereas how many pine books have they sold? Like maybe a couple hundred thousand? Right. That's probably an overestimation. The the difference in size uh, when it comes to these communities is is pretty obvious when you start hitting the internet to see what's what's wrong with my pine book or what's wrong with my pie. It's it's difficult to find any answers for Pinebook. You might get a yeah. forum thread with two or three replies, and that may or may not solve your problem, but that's all you're going to get right now. So <laughs> it's still really very much the Wild West with uh, with that device. As much as I as much as I dig it, it I think maybe it needs some more time in the oven. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk about gaming then, retro gaming, of course. We're talking about emulators and things. I did try and install RetroArch on the Pinebook on the, um, I'm not going to call it Ubuntu Mate because it's not even a proper community version of it. It's Ubuntu with Mate based. I don't know. There's a slight distinction there. But anyway, I tried it on that and it was just so slow. I couldn't even configure my controller, never mind getting into the actual games. So that was just a complete non-starter for me. Uh, I don't have anything opposing <laughs> to, to to tell you. It was the exact same experience with, with me. Uh, I looked around a bit to see if there were any dedicated images for these these emulators. You know how you'll have, uh, you know, you have your RetroPie, you have your LACA is everywhere. You can just use that as your OS instead of installing it on top of your OS. Yeah. I couldn't find anything for the Pinebook. And so I took the same approach you did. I'm going to just install RetroArch on top of it. And I did actually get as far as configuring my uh, controller. It was just a generic USB uh, controller that shows up as an Android controller in inside of RetroArch. I did manage to get that configured, but I booted up a Super NES game and I didn't get any video. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, that's no good. I tried a few different ones and a few different, I tried an N64 game, um, you know, a couple different Super NES games, Atari, and none of these, I, I could not get a single game to actually show me video. And I, I was pretty sure that I had my, uh, what do you call them? The cores, right? You have to have your cores, which are basically emulating each console, each retro console. And those are, those don't really require a lot of configuration. If they're downloaded and installed, they're working. If you can actually launch a game, even if you don't get video, they're working. So I don't know what the, uh, what the hangup was there. I don't know if it's a lack of GPU acceleration. Or what? But I had no luck on the Pinebook with RetroArch. Yeah, which is a real shame because I was looking forward to using the Pinebook as an emulator station, essentially. A nice, portable, light, great battery life, little machine that I could just hook up to a TV if necessary or just use the screen on it, which is, a, it's got a lovely screen, the Pinebook. So I was hoping that that was going to be the solution because I've been trying to set up some sort of affordable retro gaming situation that's easy to use for a while. I've got an old Android phone that I briefly set it up on, and then I thought, I'll try and upgrade Android, uh, an old version of CyanogenMod, and that didn't work. And so I've got a non-booting device at the moment. Oh, no. So I've been kind of on the lookout for a while, and so I thought, this is going to be it when you'd mentioned that you were going to try um, RetroArch on the Pinebook, but unfortunately, it was just a real disappointment. But thankfully, I had a much better time on the Raspberry Pi. Presumably, you got RetroPie working pretty well on the Pi. I did. I don't know what to say about it. It was brainless for the most part. In fact, I made it more difficult than it was. And this, kids, is why <laughs> people always tell me RTFM. <laughs> RTFM. Read the documentation, folks. Because what I did is um, I got it up and running. I I'd had to do some uh, terminal commands to get my Xbox One controller synced up via Bluetooth. Uh, there was some issue where Bluetooth wasn't auto-starting when RetroPie uh, booted. I don't know why, but if you Google it, there's there's a really like two quick commands. 
and uh, you know you pseudo nano into your config file and just add a line, and then you have Bluetooth and the Xbox One um, controller syncs up wirelessly perfectly every time, and so that alone got me excited, right? Because I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm using my my slick Xbox One controller. It's wireless. It's all working, and then I was like, how do I get ROMs on? How do I get games onto this thing? And so what I was doing is I was transferring, I was going over to my laptop and I was throwing a few on a USB stick and then dragging the USB stick back to the Pi and then firing up, you know, the um, the file manager that RetroPie has. It's Midnight Commander. All right, yeah. And I was lost. <laughs> I was completely lost trying to even navigate those screens. And I was like, there's got to be an easier way. So, of course, I fire up DuckDuckGo and I'm looking around and it turns out, do you know how easy this is? You probably do. Don't spoil it. All you do is you put your USB stick into a PC and you create a new folder called RetroPie. And then you take the USB stick and put it into your Pi and it automatically creates a folder structure for you, like a directory tree that it needs. And then you take the USB stick, put it back in your computer, copy all of your games into the ROMs folder, and stick it back into the Pi, do nothing, and it copies them all over to the appropriate directory. Wow. <laughs> I had no clue. <laughs> so I had no clue it was that easy. Well, I must admit that I didn't read the manual on Uh-oh. this one. <laughs> and so I didn't get very far. I've tried a couple of times with RetroPie, and I think I tried once upon a time and it was fine, but recently the attempts that I've had, I've just been very frustrated because things like that aren't obvious unless you read the manual. And you could say, okay, well, you should be reading the manual. But for me, I just like to just model through things generally. And I think that most people are going to do that. And so RetroPie for me was a very frustrating experience. I think I just about managed to get my controller configured, but then I just couldn't get out of that screen somehow. And I just, Hmm. I don't know, I I didn't spend very long with it, to be fair. I spent much more time with Lacquer. But I just ultimately gave up on it because I knew how good Lacquer was, which we'll get onto in a second. But maybe I should actually read a bit more about how to do things because it's not that intuitive retro, but I think we can both agree on that one. Yes, yeah, we definitely can. Although I I think it just needs, it needs some tooltips or just some little guides along the way, you know, uh, just yeah. a help menu or something. Because I'm the same way, Joe. I, I like to just, you know, walk into the fire blind and just experience it and learn along the way. I don't really like reading documentation unless I'm forced to. Um, but it turns out, I mean, behind the scenes, there's a really smart, intuitive kind of file system happening there that makes your job easier if you actually know about it. And uh, one thing I wanted to touch on is my favorite console was the Dreamcast, and I could not get a single Dreamcast game running. So that was that was a bit of a bummer. But from what I've read, the Pi has no issues playing Dreamcast games from a uh, performance perspective. All oh, right, I had a similar situation with the PlayStation 1, I'm not sure if the Pi is capable of that. It might be a bit of a stretch, but I just couldn't get any PlayStation 1 ROMs working at all, unfortunately. But my sort of console peak was the Mega Drive Genesis, as you would call (laughs) it in America. And they work absolutely perfectly. That and Game Gear as well, which are very similar. You can often use one 
emulator to to emulate Game Gear and Mega Drive at the same time. And I found that was working absolutely perfectly on Lacquer. Well, we have to talk about Lacquer then because I feel a bit jealous that I didn't get to experience this and you've had such a great time with it. So tell me about it. Well, first of all, RetroPie and Raspbian uh, don't fully utilize my monitor. So I've got a 1440p monitor. That's like uh, quad HD, I think you call it. Yeah. And with Raspbian and RetroPie, there's a black bar around the whole screen. So I'm sure there are ways to fix that that are relatively easy with config files, but ain't no one got time for that. Come on. So with Lacquer, though, it just filled the whole screen. Whether or not it was 1080p or 1440, I'm not sure. By the time you're getting into the Mega Drive games, that doesn't really matter because they're pretty low res. <laughs> yeah. But the whole UI was looked great to me. So I think it may have been full res. I don't know. I don't really care. But it did fill the whole screen. So that is a massive plus point. No messing around with config files there. And it was just a very intuitive UI. You just have the various menus for setting up your controller and your display settings. And I managed to turn the volume down because my screen's also got speakers in it. And it was kind of late at night I was doing this. I didn't want to be blasting out. Uh, Sonic and stuff, all the, <laughs> the the kind of chiming of the rings every time you collect one. It was just so intuitive. I just wish there was more I could say about it, except for you don't need to read any documentation. You can get up and playing your games within minutes with it, and it's all super smooth. Looks great as well. It looks like really modern UI. And apart from some games just not working, the PlayStation stuff... I had no problem with the Mega Drive ones. And uh, yeah, that, that's about it. There's not much to say, really, apart from the fact that I don't really game much at all, if, well, just never really. And I have these kind of nostalgic feelings about playing these old games, but somehow I get bored after about five minutes generally playing them. <laughs> you just scratch that itch and then you're you're good for the next uh, month or so, right? Well, what I need to do is find someone to play with. And that that's something that I haven't experimented with lacquer is there is net play capability there so i need to hook up with someone who also wants to play mortal kombat 2 and 3 on the mega drive and see if i can get that net play stuff working because i just get bored playing against the ai essentially because it was pretty um i don't know pretty basic ai back then wasn't it yeah uh well although you know i would never beat the ai and on that note i'd be happy to play mortal kombat 2 or 3 with you if you uh, are comfortable winning every single time well, I have a cheat with Liu Kang uh, where I just have this one move that just is just so frustrating to play against me, apparently. So maybe I'll have to be Johnny Cage or something. And after that, we'll play Street Fighter, which I've been playing for about 23 years straight. All oh, right. You see, I was never really a <laughs> Nintendo man. I was all about the Sega. So that's why everyone seems to be into Mario and stuff. And like, I did have a Game Boy at some point, but... I don't know, it, it seems that everyone who's into this retro gaming stuff always goes the Nintendo route, whereas I was much more Sega, so maybe I was just a hipster back then or something. I don't know, I think it depends on when you were exposed to Sega and Nintendo. You know, because Sega was very much the underdog for years. They just didn't have the brand awareness that Nintendo had. Yeah, but for me it wasn't really about any of that, because my friends had, um, well, one had the original NES and then the SNES. I, I just think that Nintendo, even to this day, is quite a cartoony, not very realistic 
gameplay, and people love that, right? But for me, I preferred the realism. I mean, it's funny looking back at the games now, they look so terrible, but at, at least Sega was sort of aiming for realism rather than cartoony, fun... I don't know. This is a debate that we probably shouldn't get into because we'll get a lot of angry <laughs> emails. Yeah, probably. But I have to say, um, one of my favorite Genesis games was Vector Man. That game was beautiful. Did you ever play that? No, I've never played that. Check out Vector Man. All right. What what kind of game is that then? It's. I mean, it's a it's a side scrolling action game, but it's beautiful. The mechanics. It's difficult and it's beautiful. To this day, it still looks gorgeous. All right. I was mostly into sports games. Me and my brother, he's not that much older than me, so we would play two-player sports games and and fighting games and stuff. It was for me I've never really been into one-player games. It's always been about trying to compete with someone. So that's why this net play thing, I really need to check that out. We should check that out because um I'm in the same boat. I I I enjoy having a few rounds of uh you know, Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter or Madden or something old, old school Madden or Tecmo Bowl. Um, that's no fun to play just against the computer. Well, I had um, an EA Sports doubleheader, which was uh, EA Hockey and John Madden. And uh, I came up with like the, the ultimate way to beat people, which was fake field goal. Even like from your own sort of 20 yard line, <laughs> just do a fake field goal. Every time. <laughs> Yeah, the the Europeans won't have a clue what we're talking about, but uh. Joe, what I wanted to ask you about Laka and and RetroPie and RetroArch is how did the games look? Did they look pixelated or did they look as you remember them? Six of one, uh, really. They looked like I remembered them, but also somewhat pixelated. Really, the Game Gear games looked absolutely awful, especially on my oh. super high res screen. Oh yeah, I can imagine. That's where I'd love, I'd love to get one of those little touchscreens for the Pi uh, and just, you know, mount that on top and have a, a Bluetooth controller and just, and get the battery pack that comes with it and boom. Yeah, then you've got the ultimate portable retro gaming station. Yeah, that would be cool because it's quite low res, the official touchscreen, but that doesn't really matter when you're playing these old games. No, it's perfect. It's what, uh, four, I don't remember the dimensions exactly, something like 480 by 320 maybe. I think it might be a little bit more than that. But okay. It's, um, yeah, it's sort of in the six, the 800 by 600 type. I don't know, but it's it's not 720p, I don't think. But, yeah, it doesn't matter with, with these old games. I, I don't know what resolution the Mega Drive was, but it can't have been much. Um, our one game that I love playing is Side Pocket, which is like a eight-ball pool game where you kind of... Um, have to progress through different cities and stuff, and it's super hard. Um, and it's obviously just top-down. There's none of this 3D business with it. That's what I like about the old games. They were just super simple and just easy to play relative to the modern ones. There were no day-one updates and uh, you know weekly patches. And I get sour on modern gaming sometimes because something always breaks. You know, when they made those games back then, they could not be broken when they shipped. <laughs> yeah, although I was playing Sonic 2 last night and found a bug in it um, on the second zone, the chemical zone or whatever. I kind of ended up jumping into something, into some of the scenery and just couldn't get out of it. So it, it, they did have bugs, but at least there was no turn it on for a quick five minutes. Oh, no, hang on, half an hour of updates like you have with modern consoles. 
But um, I don't know. I think still, if you look at the games you've got today, they are way better than they were back then in a lot of ways. But there's something charming about the simplicity of games back then. Indeed. So when it comes to the pie, then, presumably you have got a lot more to do with it still. You wanted to try out Pie Hole, for example, and presumably you want to get into some of the media stuff, Cody and all that sort of stuff. This is what I want to do with it. I want to check out Pie Hole. I want to explore Pie Music Box a bit more. I want to create some kind of home backup. As, as we kind of touched on that in the first episode, I'm still looking for that solution. It doesn't have to be blazing fast. It just has to be reliable and stable and easy. And I think there's a solution um, kind of waiting for me with the pie and tons of other stuff. So I think I'm going to need at least three or four of these things. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Once you find something to do with it that's permanent, then it's a case of, right, well, now I need another pie. So it's a good business model of theirs, isn't it? You can see why they've done so well. Yeah, it's lucrative. It's, <laughs> um, it's not a box that's meant to be a multitasker. It's, it seems like, to me, it's meant to set it up for a singular purpose and just put it away. Let it do its thing. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, before we get out of here, very quick update on the Obsusa Tumbleweed Challenge. It sounds like you haven't done much with it, but you have tried out the other version of OpenSUSE, which is Leap. Yes. I admittedly, I got pretty frustrated with Tumbleweed. And like I said in episode two, that's not necessarily a reflection of the distro. It's just, I think, a bit over my head and a bit just not intuitive enough for me to use on a daily basis. But I decided I should try Leap. I should at least spend some time with a non-rolling release version of OpenSUSE. Let's see how that compares. Uh, the installer was way easier than Tumbleweed. It still felt a little archaic, you know, kind of like it was wrapped up in this, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s shell and, and hasn't really caught up to kind of the elegance of your Pop! OS or Elementary or, you know, Manjaro Deepin style installer. But what I paid attention to this time around that I didn't pay attention to with Tumbleweed is just how deeply you can dig into the packages that you want and don't want on there. Yeah, that's really impressive. I mean, you can install up to three uh, desktop environments right off the bat. I think it's um, XFCE, KDE, and GNOME right from the install. You can set it up to be a server. You can remove all the office packages and the games if you want. You can add your multimedia codecs. You can just go nuts or keep it really, really simple and streamlined. And I really like that flexibility. Yeah, it's a very powerful installer. More powerful than the likes of Ubiquiti in Ubuntu and the derivatives. But you kind of pay for that power with a lack of simplicity. So it depends what you're going for. It's it's not really aimed at me or you, I don't think. But there are people for whom it is just the perfect distro, really, and the perfect installer. So I think that it just illustrates the choice and differences that we have in Linux. And I always say that the only thing I love more than XFCE is choice. And that's why I love Linux. <laughs> Absolutely. I did want to ask you something about Leap. I noticed once I got it installed, 
it's running on kernel 4.12. That seems uh, a bit outdated to me. What what are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that is quite an old kernel, but that's not the point of Leap to be the most up-to-date. If you want really up-to-date kernels and software, that's why they have Tumbleweed. Whereas Leap is just a snapshot that's designed to be stable and get security updates, but not be modern and flashy until the next major version. So again, that's just the choice. Do you want to be super up-to-date, in which case use Tumbleweed, or are you happy with the older versions of things, in which case use Leap? That's what I discovered about OpenSUSE, is that one version, Tumbleweed, is just way too bleeding edge, and the other version is just not quite modern enough for me. So... Overall, it's been a really good learning experience. I've I've learned how to snapshot my system. I've learned some new commands. I recognize that it's not a distribution for me, but I also appreciate that it is probably really well suited toward a lot of people who are more advanced than me. Yeah, it's certainly popular among a certain section of the audience and the Linux community generally. So it, it certainly has a place, but again, it's not really the distro for me. But I get the feeling we'll be talking about your next distro challenge on the next episode, but who knows? The only way to find out is go to choose.linux.show slash subscribe, and that way you can get all of the future episodes. And you can go to choose.linux.show slash contact if you want to get in touch with us. And you can find us on Twitter. I am at KillYourFM. And I'm at Joe Ressington. We'll be back in two weeks with more exciting discoveries. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. See you later.